stepped inside of Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and I want to welcome you to another exciting edition of Psychotic Bump School. So ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have an amazingly full show. We have an amazingly incredible lineup. So check this out. It's from coast to coast and international, y'all. We have some really, really poignant topics to get to this evening. We're going to have Dr. Allison McDade and a good brother named Moyo. Moyo is a psychiatric nurse out of Northern California, and Dr. Allison McDade is a psychiatrist out of Houston, Texas, y'all. Now, they're going to be joining us from different parts of the country and in different segments talking about the impact of 2021 upon us already in the world of black psychiatry and psychiatric medicine. That's right. So that's Moyo as well as Dr. Allison McDade. We're also going to have Dr. Miyang Lu Kabata. She's going to be breaking down the impact of Asian American violence. Oh my God. If you were watching President Joe Biden's address the other night, he talked about it, he condemned it. There is a lot of very disturbing acts perpetrated against our Asian American brothers and sisters and the elders of our community in the Asian American community. So we're going to be breaking that down and listen to the mental health implications from that community, from the amazing Northern California clinical psychotherapist, Dr. Miang Lu Kabata. And I am proud to welcome Anita Kopach. Now, this good sister is not only a psychologist, she's a spiritual psychologist, and she has an amazing book out there called Shallow Waters. It's the story of a black mermaid, y'all, straight out of the Ifa religion. So uh, we had an amazing time talking to Anita. Anita Kopach is joining us all the way from New York City. So you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back to kick off our show with Dr. Lou after this. So many of them are fellow Americans. They're on the front lines of this pandemic trying to save lives. And still, still, they're forced to live in fear for their lives just walking down streets in America. It's wrong, it's un-American, and it must stop. Psychotic Bump School, KCWGTheTruth.com, Call us with 
Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, we're here to talk about something that is gaining national attention and traction for very good reason and long, long, long overdue. And I'm talking about violence in the Asian community against our Asian American elder brothers and sisters. Uh, there have been some vicious attacks caught on video in Northern California alone and uh, nationwide, we've been hearing about the rise and spikes in numbers of violent cases being reported against Asian Americans. Where is this coming from? Some have cited the previous administration. Uh, we would be remiss if we limited it to just that. I think these issues have been long-standing and uh, I want to talk about some of their implications. So to help me have this conversation, I am really excited to welcome this guest. She's a clinical psychotherapist in Northern California and I'd like to welcome her to the program. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bum School, Dr. Mei Yang Lu. Dr. Lu, are you there? Yes. Hi, Gigi Rome. Hey, thank you for joining us, Mei Yang. Well, uh, we have to talk about this, and I love meeting people, and <laughs> you know, the cliche is like, I wish we didn't have to meet under these circumstances, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, we need to talk about this. Um, I know you've been hearing about these stories, and you know, you're living in some areas that have actually been impacted in a very um, intimate way. Uh, what are your thoughts on what you've been seeing? There's been news of the rise of these violent crimes against the uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders. Um, what can you tell us about your understanding of these issues and about why we are seeing these spikes in the number of hate crimes against Asian Americans? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, we're so, I'm so glad that we're, that we're talking about this today, um, <clears throat> you know, and I, one, you know, I, I want to echo what you kind of started with um, earlier, which is, you know, in, in talking about kind of how how do we want want to how can we understand what's happening right now, yes. um, in terms of violence towards our Asian American community and our elders in particular. Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing that we do have to start with. I mean, it, it is it feels like a given. Um, it feels like it's you know a nightmare that we're all just collectively just starting to wake up from and are still still dealing with the aftermath of but we have to point out um the aftermath Sorry. of the racist um white supremacist uh violent um rhetoric of the previous administration mm. um you know i remember as soon as um as soon as 
COVID-19 became a much more headline issue here in the US. Um, as soon as we started seeing lockdowns in the Bay Area, I, I'm in San Francisco. Um, so San Francisco, the Bay Area, I think we were the first city to really um, take proactive measures and shut down. Um, and, uh, you know, from, from the very first days, you know, I mean, the rhetoric of having this thing be called the China virus, um, mm. the travel bans um, that started right away, um, you know, the, the this practice of, of hate and blame and, um, you know, that, that started from pretty much day one. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, and I remember in those first days, myself and others in, in my, you know, circles, my family, um, all of a sudden walking around with this just heightened level of fear and vulnerability um, around things like mask wearing even, you know, like what does it mean that I'm Asian and walking on the streets um, in a place that used to feel, um, you know, somewhat more or less safe um, and wearing a mask or not wearing masks, you know, it just, I think this identity really compounded like a lot of these day-to-day -day decisions even, um, and really kind of insinuated their way into just our kind of daily life um, wow. in this way. Um, so, you know, right away from the spring and, um, and it's, you know, I think the media attention on this kind of died down for a while as we went into the summer and, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had to contend with, you know, brutal murders of black Americans and black individuals in our community. Um, so, which, you know, again, rightfully so, that was so important and um, so, so crucial to engage with. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, but, but I think, you know, the, the kind of racist, um, understanding of, you know, this pandemic of, of how Asians and Asian Americans um, are factoring into it, it really never went away. And I think mm. this is just yet another spike and another wave that we're seeing um, come up right now. What's the discussion like in the Asian American community around their mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there is a recognizable, absolutely clear impact. Um, on the mental health of our community members. And, and, and I would say, you know, what I'm seeing for the first time, you know, I, I've been in this country, so I, I was born um, and raised for much of my childhood in China. And I immigrated um, here when I was a, a young teenager. Um, so that's been about, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And so in all of this time, I, I think I haven't seen a time uh, when mental health and stress um, and trauma, which I'm so glad you use that word. I'll, I want to kind of get into that a little bit later, sure. um, are such, you know, explicit topics, um, mm -hmm. uh, not just among people who, you know, members of our community who are sort of privy or who are more open to talking about it, because there's still, you know, a huge level of stigma around talking about mental health issues and mental illness in, in our community as it is. And, you know, I think many um, BIPOC communities um, that, that we're seeing, but for you know, for for many of us, this really is a taboo subject. Um, but I'm I'm seeing that really begin to change, both um, I think in my you know in my practice and just kind of again in my day to day um, life as you know as a part of this group and this population that we're really talking about um, you know how vulnerable um, again I, that sense of like visceral sort of physical vulnerability in addition to the psychic vulnerability. Um, that sense of not not being safe, that that sense of kind of anxiety and indecision about you know what is it like to be living 
with these features and this skin color, um, mm. you know, in, in places that again, used to feel maybe somewhat safe. I think it's kind of woken up many of us from that, um, delusion a bit, um, you know, that, that this country has not, is, is not safe, is not safe for people who, um, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and here I, I kind of want to touch on again, like I said, you know, I'm glad that you use the word trauma, mm -hmm. um, because I think many people may not see this kind of experience as traumatic. Mm -hmm. Um, but I want to say that, you know, I think the sense of threat and, um, lack of safety and, um, just overall kind of being told that you don't belong, you know, that, that, mm -hmm. um, that none of this is again new for many of us whether we recognize it or not right. um, and I think that's a really kind of hallmark um, manifestation of of trauma being triggered in this case I think chronic unrelenting racialized trauma mm -hmm. um, and you know so I feel like we can't really talk about this issue without contextualizing what's happening now with what's happened to Asians and Asian Americans in this country and in the world um, as a result of, of racist, you know, white supremacist policies and actions in the US. Um, you know, I, I think you're right in that a lot of what we're seeing now, you know, appear to be kind of individual members of the community, um, you know, taking kind of perpetrating, you know, violence against um, Asian Americans and Asian American elders, but, um, but you know, Asian Americans have been long the target of physical violence and suppression and exclusion um, since pretty much the very first days that we started to show up and migrate to to America. Right. Um, you know, from the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first um, policy in the U.S. that um, restricted immigration based on perceived race. Um, that, you know, barred Chinese and, and later on other Asians um, from owning property, from living in certain areas, from citizenship. Um, so, you know, and, and from there, there's just kind of a through line to Japanese internment in World War II, um, to, you know, America's involvement in the Korea and, you know, Vietnam wars overseas, um, to the killing of Vincent Chen in the 80s. And so, you know, this is, I just think it's so important to to really explicitly name that um, that and and earlier I said this delusion of safety you know that I think yeah. um, many of of us as Asian Americans but I think in our you know kind of broader American society in general think of um, that if you're Asian then you fall into the model minority narrative that you know you're you're wealthy you're educated and you're privileged in all these ways. Um, and so sort of, I think there's this kind of uh, illusion that all of these things afford us physical and, and psychic safety and a, and a place, um, a legitimate place. But I think with all that's happening right now, we see um, how just as easily all of that is, um, it, it's taken away and that, that it was never um, guaranteed or never secure in, in the first place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that part, <laughs> because we saw with the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, how fragile our democracy really is. If that happened, then it's like anything goes.
And you're yes. absolutely right. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Mei Yang. Uh, Mei Yang Liu is a clinical psychotherapist out of Northern California, specifically San Francisco. And uh, we're talking about hate crimes against Asian Americans. And we were joking off the air before we actually started this uh, live conversation about being married and how humbling that is, even for people that do mental health work. It's like, oops, I thought I knew something about this, but it <laughs> turns out uh, marriage has humbled many a people. But I'm thinking about this too, Mei Yang. I mean, I get triggered, I got triggered that is, every time I saw the George Floyd video, every single time. Mm -hmm. CNN and the networks, they didn't help. They never blurred his face or they would hardly ever blur his face. They never block it out. Just laundry list of just repeated cycles over and over again of just showing that video, showing that video, showing that video. I, being a little older, you know, I was able to catch myself. And so I know when they're kind of about to show it. So I would reflexively look away after a certain point. But when you see a violent act, when you see it played out on the news, when you see it happening against your community, mm -hmm. it does something to you anyway. But what does it do to you when you do administer mental health support? You know what I mean? Because we're supposed to be helping those who are struggling with this, right? But what kind of struggles are we going through as mental health providers? <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up because... Um... I, you know, and, and I remember again, back in the spring when, yeah, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, which, who we just, you know, passed the, the anniversary of her, her killing, um, mm -hmm. just, you know, not two days ago. Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely. That's what I was hearing from, you know, from African-American black members of my community who are just saying, you know, it's, it's, yes, this is, this is out there. We need to be talking about this, but this in itself, this kind of repeated exposure to, this kind of violence is in itself traumatizing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do think that, you know, again, I, I found myself um, feeling really conflicted about all the media attention that was starting to show up um, yes. because it, which, you know, in the beginning it wasn't, I was noticing a really clear um, lag between what I was seeing in, you know, Asian American media and social media versus kind of more of the mainstream, the, the broader outlets um, that, it, you know, and then there was sort of this catching up and all of a sudden this like over flooding of, mm. you know, images and, and you know, writings. And um, so, so I think one of the things that I, um, you know, and, and I both provide psychotherapy and I also um, do a lot of teaching and mentoring right now. And so I work with a lot of students. Um, mm -hmm. And that. one of the things, that I that I really try to keep in mind both for myself and also kind of give permission um, to my to my clients and my students is that it's you need to unplug you know it's yes. the way to because I, I think sometimes it's you know I want to be aware and I um, and in a way it's it's hopeful um, you know it's sort of positive to see that there's finally this level of attention to these issues. Um, but, you know, just for our own, you know, for, for the mental health of my clients and my students, and you're right, I mean, for myself, you know, to be able to continue to provide support and holding, um, there really needs to be a level of, um, again, permission giving, you know, I think just kind of telling ourselves that, that, that unplugging and um, giving ourselves um, some distance, giving ourselves time and space to engage with things that are joyous, that are um, restorative, mm -hmm. um, 
is just as much an act of engaging with what's happening now as directly seeing the news and reading the articles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, when you speak about that delusion, something else came to my mind too, because again, when Brianna and George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks and all that was happening last year, there was some noticeable solidarity between those yeah. protests and Asian Americans standing right by our side. So I'm wondering with how much of that sense of delusion exists in, among the Asian community, if you can speak to it, but as far as, you know, feeling safe with African-Americans, because sadly, mm -hmm. uh, at least one or two of these attacks have been perpetrated by African-Americans against Asian-American elders. Uh, can What sense of delusion do you think exists between Asian-Americans and African-Americans right now? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, yes, I, I would love to. I mean, this is, it's such a complicated issue. It, in, in a lot of ways, it, it it's 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 both old and new, um, you know, because I, I think it's just it's this ongoing piece of work that is so so important for our communities to be engaging with, um, and and I I want I like to remind people and and you know myself I I really felt like I needed to do you know educate myself and learn um, more about this um, you know last year and and even before. Um, because I feel like this is a part of the narrative that gets erased, um, just as how you know racism erases multiplicity, it erases you know the diversity amongst our own communities within the Asian American community. It erases these narratives of solidarity um, that have long existed actually between um, African American and Asian American communities that you know date back to the civil rights movement and beyond. Um, so I want to say that, you know, I, I think that that gives me a sense of kind of a starting place and, and a hopeful starting place to say, you know, we're not um, that, that this can be done, that this has been done before um, and that we're not inherently two communities at odds with each other. Um, mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, I want to be very real in acknowledging um, racism you know, the, 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 the prevalence and racist and, and existence of anti-Black racism um, within the Asian American community um, that, that comes from, I think, a place of both ignorance and, um, and fear. Uh, fear not, not, you know, it, fear of kind of, quote unquote, our own place in society. You know, like, what does it mean if, if I make space for speaking up for, you know, Black brothers and sisters? what does that do to my own standing within this kind of racial hierarchy that, that has been imposed on me? Mm. Um, so I think that's very real. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm heartened to see, I mean, I think a lot of um, leaders who are, you know, taking up the mantle in, in advocating for, um, for Asian Americans and, and to call out, you know, violence and, and, harassment and racism against Asian Americans right now are also being very explicit in um, talking about this particular piece, you know, and saying, yes, we may see, you know, individuals who, who may be of, um, you know, African American descent or, or Latinx or, you know, black and brown, but, um, but it's not, this is not an issue that, that should be pitting our communities against each other. Mm. Um, you know, that, that in fact, you know, there's been very explicit messaging around, you know, 
um, over policing is not the answer. Um, you know that that we ha also have to be really aware of. Um, you know what what does what does it mean if we invite more policing presence into our communities in order to to keep mm -hmm. us safe? You know what is what is that? Um, what are the broader implications of that? So, um, so I think that's very much part of the part of the um, the messaging and and the leadership that I'm seeing. Um, and on on the other hand, I mean, I, I remember seeing um, there there have been, I think part of the response, kind of community, you know, grassroots response have been these brigades of volunteers um, that have just self organized, you know, in places like Oakland Chinatown, mm -hmm. um, to to walk elders home, you know, to to help them with. Um, tasks or you know just to, to make sure that they're that they're safe in, in their neighborhood um, and I'm seeing you know that these are not just Asian Americans who are who are turning up but but you know our, our black and brown brothers and sisters who are kind of heeding the call and showing up mm -hmm. um, and and so you know and there's been other you know acts of solidarity um, that I know for me personally has gone a long long way in um, helping me feel like, you know, I, I've got my back covered, um, that, that, that it's not just on, you know, on, on our own group mm. to, to look out for ourselves, but, you know, that we're all kind of really in this boat together and we show up for each other in times of need. In some ways, we know this is horrible, but we also have to acknowledge the, that there are some positive ramifications from this. But some would say, did we really need that? Like some people said, maybe Donald Trump was a blessing because he did make America great because mm -hmm. the Democrats are in the White House, the Democrats are in the Senate, the Democrats are in the House. But at what cost, though, mm -hmm. would be my question. So did can you speak to that dilemma of trying to um, derive the, the positives, the silver lining from uh, a boatload of travesty, you know, mm -hmm. circumventing it? Can you speak to that a little bit before we let you go? Mm hmm. Yeah, um, you know, when I'm thinking about this, there's a there's a, a parallel concept in in mental health um, called uh, post traumatic growth, I believe. Mm. Um, you know, is this idea of of um, how we sort of look at traumatic events and um, and what happens, you know, to to us mentally and psychologically after something traumatic happens to us. And um, you know, I think oftentimes, so so of course, you know, I think the what I'm kind of speaking to right now is just the trauma, you know, the layers and layers and layers upon, of, of um, racialized, you know, gender oriented trauma that um, all of us, I think, you know, met, or most of us, I, I should say, um, you know, who, who are aware and open to these issues experienced in the last, you know, four plus years. Um, so that's, I think, you know, it's that, that's the cost that you're speaking to. That's the, you know, did it really, need to take, you know, th this level of um, injury to, to get us to this place. Right. Um, I mean, I know the freezer is cold. I don't have to open the freezer door to know it's cold in there. Okay. Right, right, right. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the, the, the reason why I'm thinking about post-traumatic growth, um, which is, I think, in contrast to a lot of ways that sometimes we think about trauma um, as, you know, something that is, difficult to recover from that, you know, scars you or injures you in a, a permanent way in, in some, you know, some fashion, um, that there's actually research and, um, and, and approaches that really look at how do you not just 
sort of recover to equilibrium, you know, or or what what you were before this traumatic event happened. Um, that that that's actually not necessarily the goal of recovery from trauma, but rather um, that you know traumatic events happen, and there's a way to kind of derive um, new senses of meaning, new senses of purpose, mm -hmm. um, new skills, new um, paradigms, you know, ways of looking and approaching things that that can come from um, of traumatic events. Um, mm -hmm. So so I think, yeah, that was the, the parallel that came to mind of, you know, here we are, of, co of course, wishing that that none of this had happened to any of our communities. You know, I'm thinking again, Asian, whether it's Asian Americans or Black Americans, the Muslim ban, you know, the, mm -hmm. the children who are still caged up on the border. Um, but, you know, but I think there's a real um, renewal, you know, of, of our recognition of the truth, you know, of, of this society that we live in. This has been awesome. Uh, we've been listening to the amazing Dr. Mei Yang Lu psychotherapist, clinical psychotherapist, that is, out of Northern California in the beautiful city of San Francisco. Uh, Dr. Mayang, will you come back and join us again? I would love to. And it's it's been a privilege to be here today. Thank you oh. so much. This is Angel on Sax, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host DJ Rome on KCWG, thetruth.com, best internet radio on the planet. I'm going back to the south. I'm going back, 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 back when my roots ain't watered down. Growing, growing like a bob tree of life on fertile ground. My ancestor put me on game. Long charm on gold chains with my old shoon in a jail. Drip all on me.
Treat.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, as we said at the top of the show, we got the doctors in the house tonight, y'all. We have a pandemic going on, in case you don't know, but we also have some relief on the way. Them stimmies are heading into people's accounts, and people are finally experiencing an iota of hope and relief. Uh, some of us. And it's been long in coming. And to make a statement about the, the level of angst that has sort of consumed this nation uh, in the, throughout the course of this coronavirus and its response federally, uh, it, it's caused some issues. And of course, if this nation has a cold, they say black folks got the flu and black folks don't necessarily just get the flu in terms of congestion. It can get all up in our mental and our spiritual. And so I wanted to talk to someone who has some insight as to the impact of what these pressing issues have upon our citizens in terms of their mental health and from a psychopharmacological perspective. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bump School, Dr. Allison McDade. Dr. McDade, are you there? I am. Hi, thank you. And uh, uh, thank you for inviting me over. Oh, it's a pleasure. Dr. McDade, y'all, is a psychiatrist out of Houston, Texas in private practice. So I'm really excited to be talking to you about these things. When you think about all these STEMIs, you know that do do you know that they call them STEMIs? These stimulus checks. I I do. I, I like that name. It's cute. Isn't it cool? <laughs> I, like I got them STEMIs, y'all. I got them STEMIs. <laughs> and it's like you kind of deal in STEMIs too because you work with antidepressants and stimulants mm -hmm. and well anyway mm -hmm. we'll talk about that. But I I just thought that was a a cool little link. But wow, 
in Houston, Texas. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about your practice? Uh, what are some of the more common and pressing issues that you're dealing with in terms of the mental health of our folks out there where you are in the Houston region? That would be Harris County, correct? Mm -hmm. That's uh, right. Yeah. What are you seeing from day to day in your practice? I would say that um, from day to day, what I'm seeing, uh, especially since the pandemic hit, is an increase in addiction issues. Mm. So um, addiction, then addiction leading to worsen whatever the baseline psychiatric issue was. So depression, anxiety, um, what have you. So a lot of people are coming in and, you know, especially at the beginning when we had the uh, complete lockdown, especially in Texas, because, um, you know, mm -hmm. we kind of let up very soon after, but the first couple of weeks where there was a lockdown, nobody was, um, you, didn't, you didn't have to go to work. You could mm -hmm. just work from home. You, mm -hmm. you know, some people would, you know, you could drink in the morning, you can drink in the afternoon you know, use things that you weren't typically using when you were at work because people were there and they could, you know, they could see you. Mm -hmm. A lot of people kind of fell into um, either um, into back into their addiction or kind of mm -hmm. developed a, a new addiction. And so that was something that I definitely saw a lot of a lot of people, a lot more people coming into detox off of drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the what we call like the sequelae of using those things. So alcohol can be a depressant, can make you um, uh, more and more depressed if you continue to use it um, excessively. Um, using things like cocaine, meth, popping pills, that kind of stuff, they can all worsen your anxiety, your depression can cause you to have um, what we call psychosis and that kind of stuff. So we're seeing a lot more of that, um, hmm. especially early on, uh, maybe the first couple of months of the pandemic. The other thing I would say is um, uh, with kids, um, and this is kind of like a positive and a negative. So there, you know, a lot of the kids that I see, because I'm, I'm a child trained psychiatrist, um, a lot of the kids that I see come to me because of anxiety, um, a lot of issues with uh, relating to other kids socially at school. So maybe being picked on, bullied, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, that affects their mental health. You know, that's something that we've, uh, we all know is is a stressor. And um, when the pandemic hit, a lot of those kids, you know, they were able to just continue school from home and a lot of their anxiety improved. And so mm -hmm. um, in the past, um, and, I, and, and you mentioned that you, you know, you've also worked with um, juvenile or children in the past, yes. but, um, but in the past, what we've said is, okay, you know, if your child has anxiety, we want to make sure that you continue to keep them in school because then that can increase the amount of things, you know, if they're at home, then they're kind of isolated and it makes it even harder to kind of rejoin society, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but what we, what I, what I saw with a lot of the kids that I had who had anxiety was um, the fact that they knew a lot of kids that were also at home. They didn't necessarily feel like them having to do school from home was a failure in some way. Okay. And then um, also, um, you know, now we have Zoom, we have, um, you know, they could do their extracurriculars where they're still going to see their friends there, but they didn't have to necessarily deal with all the um, negativity at, um, that they're receiving at school. Yeah. And so some of those kids, they flourish, like some kids who are kind of like chronic or I would say chronically, but um, would frequently have like suicidal thoughts or mm -hmm. um, very depressed or anxious because of their um, environment at school, um, those kids did better. What's your um, therapeutic approach to them? 
So um, it kind of depends on what the on what type of anxiety it is. So if you have a child that um, uh, has, let's say, um, generalized anxiety, so they have panic attacks, it's not really a specific trigger for them, um, that sort of stuff, then, um, you know, then that would be something that we would consider treating with medications. Um, and so the goal with medicine is to help um, not necessarily um, completely remove panic attacks or completely remove anxiety. Um, mm. That's there's still going to be some level of anxiety for most people. Mm. Um, the the point of using antidepressants is to help decrease it to a point where they're able to still engage in whatever it is that might cause anxiety, mm. um, and then have them learn. Okay, well, you know what, I was able to go to school today and I was able to stand up in front of the class or I was able to, to um, you know, um, talk to a new person without, and nothing bad happened. And it's almost like, it's almost like teaching yourself, okay, well, I'm learning that, you know, this is not necessarily a thing that's going to harm me. This is not a, a fight or flight, a need for a fight or flight response. The number of black psychiatrists just generally in the profession are not near to the level of uh, white uh, psychiatrists. So can you talk about that a little bit about some of the things that might distinguish uh, someone's benefit? You know, I'm just going to call it a net benefit if they have a chance to see mm -hmm. from our community. Uh, can you talk about what some of those uh, unique features are with seeing a black psychiatrist and how it's distinguished from seeing other psychiatrists who are not African American? Absolutely. So um, one thing that one statistic that I always like to bring up is that um, you know, in terms, if you look at um, mental health diagnoses by race, um, African-Americans have the same um, portion of uh, people in, in the population with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, however, as everybody else. However, um, if you look at like what we're actually diagnosed with, we are more frequently diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder than um, our counterparts. And um, they think that implicit bias is the reason why. So um, I, I believe that part of that is like, like I said, implicit bias, but also we speak about things, we kind of communicate things a little bit differently sometimes. So um, one thing that uh, I would say like my grandma, she's, um, you know, she's like 94. And so whenever she's not feeling good or she's feeling down, she doesn't say, man, I'm feeling so sad today. I'm feeling depressed. It's I'm tired. Ah. I, you know, a, a lot of like some, like what we call somatic or like physical complaints, right? Like I'm tired. My stomach hurts. I feel like my body is tired, you mm. know, not necessarily um, I'm depressed or I'm sad. Um, I, I use my grandma as an example because um, growing up, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand that difference until I kind of like started, um, you know, medical school and residency. And I was like, oh shoot, grandma's, grandma mm. says that when she's depressed or, mm. um, you know, or when grandma, like my grandma also has panic attacks sometimes, which again, I didn't recognize her panic attacks because mm. um, I, you know, we didn't really voice them as such, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so she would say, oh, my heart, something's wrong with my heart not, not I'm feeling anxious, right. you know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, sometimes, um, 
we will might communicate some things a little bit differently and that can cause things to be missed right mm -hmm. so um you can go to your primary care doctor and talk about how tired you are and this and that and they'll say oh you know lose weight eat less salt but the problem is actually that you're depressed and so that's a missed that then that gets missed how do you distinguish when it's time to prescribe versus it's time to continue other forms of therapeutic intervention so um, for me, what I usually look at is how much something is impairing someone's ability to function. So is this making it to where um, it's affecting their schoolwork or their, their job? Is this making it to where, um, like more recently I had a um, patient who um, was depressed um, and she was having trouble with showering, um, even just doing laundry seemed like a huge task for her. Um, it was affecting her ability to work. So she was like having trouble with concentration, falling behind at work because she, she was just depressed. Mm -hmm. And so um, I look kind of at those things, especially with anxiety. I look at those things to see, okay, well, um, where is this impacting them? And if it is causing a lot of issues, then then it, it, it guides the treatment. So it guides like, okay, well, are we gonna start an antidepressant versus um, something that's kind of more of like a um, medication just to take whenever they're having symptoms. And I always try to tell people like, don't look at medicine as a failure in any way, because if you were to get started on blood pressure medicine, you wouldn't look at that as a failure. Mm. You look at that as, um, okay, well, you know, high blood pressure runs in my family. So, you know, I gotta just make sure I take these medications to to make sure that I stay, stay, stay um, healthy. You How know? much better are we getting with that? Because people, okay, <laughs> let's take our elders, for example, because they were like, look, child, we just dealt with it, all right? I mean, we just took it on the chin and just kept on going. And you youngins in Generation XYZ, y'all entitled, y'all complain a lot, y'all, 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 y'all. Hey, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? <laughs> we not talk about oil. I mean, we... <laughs> Joke, I, I shouldn't be the one talking about oil. You're right. Yeah. We private joke, ladies and gentlemen, with cars. We were talking about before the interview. I have to tell you another time. But the squeaky wheel does get the oil, though, right? I mean, but they, there's this sense that we have become, I hate to use this term because it's so politically charged. charged. Well, say your word again. Oh, charged. I, yeah. So I said, well, like snowflakes. They call them. Oh, like yeah. Weak. It's like you guys are you guys are experiencing this because you're not strong enough. And it, mm -hmm. because of people giving them that that you haven't had enough trauma. Yes. <laughs> it's a race. Let's see how much we can handle. So are we getting better with that, Dr. McDade? Have we begun to educate people that it's it's okay not to be okay, you know? I would say that yes, in some ways, and then still there's some things that we have to get better at. So um, I would say that there definitely has been more of a conversation about mental health in the African-American community. Because when I was growing up, mm -hmm. um, it was like therapists. You know, we don't have to pay somebody to be mm -hmm. airing out the the dirty laundry, right. you know, or therapy. We, we're not going to pay somebody to be your friend, you know. Like the, that was that was what people would say, right? Long and so, pray to the Lord, pray to your Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. And um, you know, 
that's another thing we've talked about. I've talked to, about this before that for whatever reason, when you go to church, they never say, oh, you know, oh, Sister McDay, you don't need that, uh, that, uh, I don't know, that thyroid surgery. God will heal you. No, they'll say, we're going to pray for you while you go, you, you get on the prayer list. We're going to pray for you while you get your thyroid, you know, fixed or whatever. Um, but, but when it comes to depression, like emotional, psychiatric issues, then it's like, oh, we're going to pray for you. But like, as, as though um, psychiatry and therapy are saying that you don't believe. Dr. Allison McDade is a psychiatrist out of Houston, Texas, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us on Psychotic Bump School. Will you come back and join us again sometime? Absolutely. This is Uncle Funk of the Soul Children LA, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome on KCWG, thetruth.com the best internet radio station on the planet. We are continuing our discussion. KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and I am really excited to welcome this next guest. This good brother has uh, traveled and traversed the world, and he has landed in Northern California, and he's doing some amazing work with our youth up there. So I'd like for y'all to meet Moyo, psychiatric nurse practitioner. He goes by Moyo. Mr. Moyo, are you there? Yes, sir. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Jerome, how are you doing today? Oh, real well, real well. Well, uh, we have a little bit in common in that we both reside in the Northern California region. We care deeply about the young folks and you have uh, targeted your work to specifically target them. Uh, We're coming out of a pandemic, a new administration, a new rollout of the vaccine and now stimulus checks. There's a lot happening right now and I'm just wondering how we're feeling as a whole. Can you give us an idea of how your practice has evolved just in this year uh, since the onset of the new year and new administration? And uh, how are people doing with their childhood uh, issues and trauma? Uh, Moyo, can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to just talk to you about that issue. So what happened, what's happening is that uh, uh, I started my practice in 2019. And then as soon as I started the practice, a few months later, we just went into lockdown. And then... Uh, so I just been doing telepsychiatry. I'm not seeing people in, in prison, and then so many people have so many issues. Like especially our young folks, young black folks, there's so many issues of ADHD, ODD. But most of them are just being diagnosed with ADHD without being a proper assessment. Okay. When they come to me, I do like a thorough assessment, and sometimes it might be you know, operational defined disorder, something to do with the family. And then when they go to the other doctors, they just are diagnosed with ADHD and just giving some ADHD medication. Why do they do that? Well, I guess sometimes people, we don't, they don't have a similar experience with them. And so the doctors, some of the day in the, in the pressure to, to just see a patient, like sometimes three or four patients an hour. So they only have a limited time to see the patients. And then they don't have that lived experience with the patients. So all they, all they see is just uh, their 
acting up at school and that's it. So they say, okay, that's ADHD. When they, if they dig deeper, they see there's a lot of issues going on in the household, in the family, or in the community. And definitely, that's what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Now you do psychiatric nursing. So how do those two worlds work together when you're trying to distinguish whether someone is experiencing ADHD versus OCD? Uh, how do you make those distinctions as a psychiatric nurse? What are the, what's the assessment um, battery or, well, not the specific battery, but what's the therapeutic philosophy that you use to combine both those worlds together? Yes, as a psychiatric nurse person, I do the same functions as a, a psychiatrist. So what I do is I do like a thorough assessment of patients because sometimes people assess for like 30 minutes and then they're just giving a diagnosis. I take like an hour to go through the patients bit by bit what's going on. And before that, I'd have been given some information by the mother and the father or whatever caregiver. So it goes over the information. And then sometimes it may take two or three meetings to to get a real diagnosis. Because sometimes the issues are just, you can't just come over the issue the same day. Certain states in the country are opening up fully and they are sort of, uh, wagging their finger in the face of anybody that's still wearing a mask and is practicing as if this pandemic is still going really strong. Um, can you speak a little bit to, is, is it appropriate? I mean, just for, for children's mental health. Um, and I know it can be anecdotal because I, I know you're, all, you're also a father. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a father. You know what I'm saying? So what, yeah. what would you recommend in terms of the mental health realities surrounding whether or not it's appropriate for schools uh, to be open for our, our, our children right now in the in the midst of this pandemic? Well, I feel that, uh, first of all, you, you take it to your household first. If you want, you want in the household, you tell your kids, you want, you want them to wear masks, you're going to wear masks. And then as far as schools are concerned, I'm, I can't speak intelligent about this, but I've heard some concerns about like schools did not have uh, the proper ventilation in the schools and should right. need to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And some of the schools are old schools, so they might not have uh, they don't know the textbook funding to totally redo the schools like other other like upscale schools can or private schools can. So that's kind of like a almost like a case by like it's, uh, I know it's almost like a cop out for me to say, but it's like a, a district by district thing. They got to look at the numbers, how it's progressing. But I would, according to to wear masks because this is serious. People die alone. Yeah. You know, it's real. Yep. And it's real. It's not a joke. Not a joke. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. Well, neither are you, good brother. Uh, we're talking to Moyo, psychiatric nurse out of Northern California by way of the beautiful country of Zimbabwe. Man, I can't thank you enough for being here, man. If somebody wanted to access your services or find someone who could help them with their family-based issues, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? I look at reach me. My website is called betterdayspsychiatricnursing.com. Betterdayspsychiatricnursing.com. Also, a profile on psychology today. And uh, I also advertise, uh, let me see what else. Uh, yeah, psychology today in the better days, psychiatry uh, is the best place to reach me at. But I'm, I'm around Southern in California, Northern California. But now, with the COVID, with the quarantine, the advantage of the only one of the good things about 
No, I, I couldn't even say the good thing. One of the uh, silver lines of COVID is that I can see people from anywhere in California. I can see people from LA, the Bay, Bakersfield, wherever they are, because we do yeah. telepathy. <laughs> I'm getting spoiled yeah. a little because isn't that kind of cool? I mean, it's like, look, I, yeah. I, I don't want to celebrate this pandemic, but that is one of the silver linings, like you said, right? Yeah, that we can reach out to everybody in California. I can see people everywhere in California. Whereas before, I could only see people in my city, yeah. in the office, but not reach out to anyone in California. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you hear that because now that if you had any reservations or excuses, Moyo's just laying, laying out why that's no longer going to work because you can find anybody now. The internet and this pandemic, you know, sad to say, has re helped people realize that this world is a lot smaller than we realize. Yeah. Because of that, we can reach out. And, 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 and yeah, go ahead. And the excuse too for no so enough for an appointment because your appointment is right there. All you got to do is just put your pants on and uh, <laughs> right. baby, brush your teeth. And that's oh, it. But it, it, it living with you. <laughs> but it takes so much energy to roll over, pull the <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, well, that's a telltale sign. If you're struggling with that, then that's definitely a sign that you might need to talk to uh, Mr. Moore. Yeah, yes. If you, if you have struggled with Getting out of bed, then you need help. That's right. Stuff is good for you, but then sometimes you might need medication. And let's not let's not uh, pathologize. Let's not stigmatize people with dealing issues. People can be dealing yeah. with depression, anxiety, even schizophrenia, bipolar, anything. Let's yeah. not uh, uh, stigmatize those people. That's right. That's right. Hey, I mean that's why you're here. That's why I have these doctors on on this episode, man. You guys help. Uh, and I know you're, you're practicing nursing, but it, it's still, I mean, it's so few of you, man. So I, I am honored to be able to talk to you, man. And uh, the fact that you're doing this work and have made yourself available to so many of us across this great state, man, you are really appreciated beyond words. So continued success to you, good brother. And I will definitely be back in touch with you, okay? Thank you, sir. All right, I appreciate you. This is KCWG, the truth.com program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Brom. That was the good brother Moyo, psychiatric nurse out of Northern California. Y'all stay tuned for more. We'll be right back after this. This is Anita Kopach, author of Shallow Waters, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. I'm black mermaid from the bottom of the sea. I will teach you how to love me. And the greatness I will lead you Cause I'm a black mermaid Nothing where you will find I'm here for you to love me I'll be 
Okay, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, I am very excited to welcome back this good sister. And I say back because it's been a while since I have chatted with her and we were just reflecting behind the scenes about how much time has actually uh, expired since we last uh, had contact with one another. It's just been so much that's happened since then. Uh, but we go back a couple years and uh, I'm so proud to see what trajectory her life has taken since that time. She's actually an award-winning writer and a spiritual advisor. She's a spiritual psychologist, ladies and gentlemen, and she's the former editor-in-chief of Heart and Soul magazine and the managing editor of Beauty Sense magazine. And she's also the author of the latest novel, Shallow Waters, which I want to hear all about. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bump School, the good sister, Anita Kopach. Miss Kopach, are you there? I am here. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. What's going on? It's happy in, I mean, it, I, I'm elated to talk to you. I'm excited about this project you have going on. What in the world have you been doing since 2000, the early 2000s? Let's just get caught up real quick. That's been a minute, right? What in the well, world? Let's say that is, <laughs> that is a loaded question. <laughs> it is. It is. Man, what was happening in the early 2000s? What did life look like to you in the early 2000s? So since then, I've had three kids. Wow. Um, you know, like you just read, I was um, the editor-in-chief of Heart and Soul magazine for five years. I was, during that time, at the same time, I was the managing editor of Beauty Sense magazine. And um, I, all that time, you know, behind the scenes, I'm writing um, Shallow Waters at night, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, as the kids are running around. Eventually, I had to write while they're running around because... I was like, this is just never going to come out. It's never, I'm never going to be done if I just wait till the nighttime to write. Oh, okay. And um, I also got my master's in spiritual psychology. Yes. So I was uh, working with private clients for a while and also running retreats around the world. Mm. Um, I don't have private clients anymore, but I still do workshops. And hopefully uh, when things, when things, open up again, I'll be able to do retreats. So that mm. I think is kind of in a nutshell <laughs> what's yeah. been happening. Tell us about Shallow Waters a little bit. How did this come to be and uh, what is it about? So Shallow Waters is about the goddess Yemeya. And Yemeya is um, a, a goddess from the West African tradition, um, uh, the Ifa people, uh, well, the Ifa religion from the Yoruba people in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. 
and she was the goddess of the ocean and she's said to be the mother of us all and a while back one of my good friends told me that um when our ancestors came over on the middle passage um that yemeya was uh, watched over us and watched over the um the people who chose to jump into the ocean off of the ships right that she took she took care of their souls mm. and I like, ooh, I feel it in my heart. My heart just opened up. I was like, and she's a black mermaid too. And I was like, there was a black mermaid watching over us. And, you know, obviously this is, it's, it's parables and stories mm -hmm. and all of that, but still mm -hmm. it's, you know, just the spirit of a black mermaid just made me feel so excited and um, cared for. And so I really looked into who she was and where she came from and the stories and, you know, written accounts of Yemeya go back as far as the 16, um, 16th century. Mm -hmm. But but the stories are all oral stories that have been passed down for generation after generation after generation. So there's no way for us to actually tell how old these stories are. They could be from the beginning of time. Who knows? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, uh, this story, like as soon as I, I found out about it, I swear it felt like Yemeya was sitting at the edge of my bed and telling me the story. And it was, it, she just was, I, I was literally just kind of like, like, <laughs> like writing it as she's saying it. And, um, and so that's basically, you know, how how it came about mm -hmm. what's really awesome like my intention for shallow waters is um you know the intention that i've i've put into it is that we really remember who we are and where we came from mm -hmm. and um and that's you know that's one of the main intentions for me i originally wrote it as a young adult and um, but the publishers voted for it to be an adult book. They were like, this definitely they're like adults need to read this. And I was like, OK, OK. And um, and so what it's it takes place in the 1800s mm -hmm. and it starts off on the West Coast of Africa. And it's the the. Nor normal mermaid tale, right? Where a mermaid falls in love with a human, but that's where like the normal part ends, right? <laughs> so mm. she's she falls in love with a human, a fisherman, and then the slave ships come and take him. So she follows the slave ships underwater and has her own middle passage underwater, right? Mm. And when they get to the new world, the only way that she can turn into a human is this process that takes 40 days and 40 nights. And so she loses her love. And the whole book is about her trying to find her love in a time where her skin color makes her a slave. And she meets a lot of historical figures along the way. So it's a historical fiction mm -hmm. and uh, which would be awesome for your students, right? Like, because uh -huh. it's a way to learn about that time in mm -hmm. a more empowering, with an empowering um, character. And- and then you get to learn about um, historical figures along the way. Mm. Uh, so that is 
Yeah. That's the synopsis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that that's the, the contrast to that is all the, the, the images that we've grown up with. Right. I mean, I grew up watching Aquaman and I know his mother was uh, the queen of Atlantis, so to speak. And, you know, we don't hear stories like this coming up. I mean, nope. and we certainly don't uh, develop an appreciation that we actually have these fables and and stories that have been handed down orally, you know, you know, through these uh, vast and uh, treasured traditions that we have organically as, you know, the original first people. So when you bring your spirituality to a story like this, and you talk about the Underground Railroad and all the significance of that, um, what, what was it? I'm wondering that that that's such a beautiful um, starting point. But then, you know, a moment ago, you talked about when your publishers uh, read the story, knowing that you had started this long ago. And I'm just wondering how much creative control did that, how much did that influence the creative direction of the story once they kind of got a hold of that recommendation? How did that process uh, influence there was, the it was By the time I got um, with, with Simon and Schuster, um, I had already, there was, there was no more story changes that, that it, the book was, I, I did do edits still, but there was no story edits. So the book was already mm. what it is. So it's, there was, there was no creative control that I had to let go of. It's exactly the story mm-hmm. that I wrote. Well, was, how much of a journey was that? I mean, because oh, it was, about, it, it was know, a journey. <laughs> really? Tell us about that a little bit, because sisters, I mean, there's there's a lot of authors who are sisters out there in this realm, though, in with this kind of work. I don't know how common or populated the field is for this kind of story. So what what were some of the hurdles you had to overcome in the course of this journey? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, my sisters always like to say that that um, I, I never do things the way regular I'm putting in quote unquote regular mm-hmm. people do mm-hmm. um, I I for me I follow my passion my heart and it's almost as if magic the way things happen around me because I, I put so much into my passion and the story and um, the book as far as the story the story journey I've changed it um, so many times and I've edited it so many times that by the time it got to Simon and Schuster, the, the story was pretty solid. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, and, and while I was doing this, everyone's saying, Oh, how hard it is to find a literary agent, how hard it is to find a yeah. publisher, how hard it is to be in this business, how hard it is to find, to do this if it's fiction right? Simon and Schuster, only 20% of their titles are fiction. Ooh. Everything else is nonfiction. So it's, it's, really? it's definitely hard to do the, you know, to get, a, a, well, this is what I was told, right? That it's hard. Mm-hmm. And I am a praying woman. Come on. I don't do anything without praying. <laughs> Come on. That's right. And um, I've set many intentions and I've worked hard. And um, one of my prayers that I say a lot is that my lessons come to me with grace um, and with a sense of magic, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to me, what I, what I mean when I say magic, um, 
synchronicities are magic to me. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, if I think of someone and they reach out or, you know, like that, it's very simple. Magic is really simple for me. So I'll be like, I'll get excited. Like, okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's simple. Mm-hmm. So, so what was happening with this book is that last year um, in 2020, towards the beginning of last year, I um, could not find a publisher that, um, so what was happening is that I had a, a literary agent and he was sending it out to publishers and nobody was biting, right? Mm. And so I was like, you know what? It is time for this book to come out. It was when mm. all of the racial tension and all of those things were coming out. I was like, this is, this is the time that this book was made for. Mm. And so I was like, I am going to self-publish it. I'm not, I'm not going to wait for a publisher to say yes. Right. So I went forward on that path. You know, I bought an ISBN number. I created a cover. I did all of these things. Mm -hmm. And during this time, which is funny because you brought up village, one Mm -hmm. of my best friends went to the ocean and she connected with the energy of Yemeya. And she said, what does Anita need to do to get your story out there, Yemeya? And she heard or felt that Yemeya was like, give the story to Charlemagne, who she knew him. I didn't know him. And so she asked me, she's like, you know, um, (laughs) you know, she told me what she did. She was like, do you mind if I send it to Charlemagne? I was like, yeah, you know, go ahead, send it to him. At this time, she's talking about Charlemagne the God, y'all. Charlemagne the God. Yes. Yes. At this time, he hadn't, didn't have his imprint yet. Right. Hmm. And um, she sent him the story and he right away was like, wait, is she signed? <laughs> She's like, and at the time I was, I was in the process of um, while I was still going forward with the um, self-publishing, I also had a, um, a publishing deal that I wasn't that, that happy about. So I hadn't signed that, you know, that's why I was going forward with with um, the self-publishing. And so he was like, you know, I'm actually starting my own imprint and um, I, I want this for my imprint. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was saying. Like, and, and then for him, he's a huge, huge, huge believer in God. And, mm-hmm. you know, for him, he's, he's like, you can't get to him unless you go through God first, right? Like that's, that's mm-hmm. the energy he has. So it was very clear that, you know, I'm like, yeah, you, yeah, there's been a lot of prayers. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. When he yeah. says he's putting his own imprint out there, what exactly does that mean? He's getting into the publishing world or he's getting yes. into the literary so world? It is. He's he has his own imprint at Simon and Schuster and it's called oh. Black Privilege Publishing. And I am the second book that's going to be coming out. Um, Tamika Mallory has a book called um, state oh, of emergency that's coming out. Yes, Tamika. Yep. Nice. And so she's the first book that's coming out. And then um, that's coming out early in the summer. And then mine's coming out August 3rd as the second book. Oh, what a blessing. Well, what a blessing. <laughs> that, that's divine. That That is nothing but divine. Um, <laughs> did you have to, I mean, this is this still a male dominated industry? Did you have to fight, Anita? I mean, you you decided at some point, look, I'm just going to publish this myself. How hard was that? 
I mean, had you done it before? How much experience no, did you I've have? Never, you I've did? never done that before. Okay, so how did you do it? It was, it was hard wrapping my mind around it, but, there, but the easy part was that I knew that it was time, right? How did you and know I, that? I just knew. I felt the energy around and all of the, you know, the the fighting that people were doing and and, oh, yes. and it's it was just you know obviously very intense and mm -hmm. for me i have any any time there's been um poli police violence or even mm. violence in the schools um i'm i'm very sensitive and mm. so for year of obviously any you know for years we've had our people being shot down and yes. and killed and i have always had breakdowns whenever i hear about it right mm -hmm. like it's intense mm -hmm. and to me it didn't seem like the rest of the world even knew right mm -hmm. or they're completely mm -hmm. ignoring it right. and the fact that all of a sudden people saw and they heard and people all around the world were marching mm -hmm. for us mm -hmm. and you know um and and my kids are like well what is happening you know mm -hmm. like my son it was really intense um because i i like i said before i'm so sensitive i've never watched any of those videos of mm. any of right like mm. i can't, can't watch those videos right. well he i guess was curious and looked up mm. the george floyd video and he just was he was a mess and he mm -hmm. was like they killed him because he was black mm. i was like yes mm. that is what happened and um you know obviously i have fears because i'm raising a black man that's right. And and it's the same same type of thing with black women. I mean, it's it's is it it's the anniversary of Breonna Taylor, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, go ahead. And so all of that made me, you know, really, really want to put out this book, especially with the intention of us truly remembering who we are. Mm. because mm. once we really remember who we are things are about to change mm. in a big way <laughs> the big world way. might not be ready for that oh wow how about that get ready get ready get ready get ready who, who said that was that td jakes get ready get ready, get ready. oh okay. i love it <laughs> oh man. this is kcwg the truth.com's program is called psychotic bump school i'm dj rome we're talking to the good sister author and spiritual psychologist Anita Kopach. She's here just breaking it down to its final compound and sharing the, the formation and the inception and conception of her wonderful novel, Shallow Waters. Wow, what a story. In what way is the, the strength of the sisters coupled with the, the, the ancestral presence and goddessness of what that element means to us who might be still trying to function in this realm amidst mm -hmm. all this craziness? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I was at, I was connected with the ancestors throughout the whole process because um, while Yameya was sitting here um, telling me the story, I was also connecting with what perhaps my ancestors might have gone through. Um, um, uh, 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 there was a uh, a term coined that was called blood memory, mm. and um, it's like connecting with 
you know, our ancestors through our memory in our cells, right? Mm. One thing that was really interesting when I was connecting with the ancestral memory and ancestral, um, you know, blood memory was, was um, I had this resistance to work. But I, re I realized whenever I actually did the work, it felt amazing. So I'm like, why, where is this resistance coming from? Right? Mm. Like, why, why am I resisting something that when I do feels amazing mm -hmm. and went on this whole journey with myself and realized that it's because of all of the work that my ancestors did for free and okay. that this, you know, so I had this, um, aversion, right. To wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and mm -hmm. so, and which, which has nothing to do with the, you know, like the, the beautiful work we, we may have done before we had to um, build this country, mm -hmm. um, you know, back in our, in, in Africa, there's so much beautiful work, right? There's probably because spirit is connected to every part of life um, in, 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 in tribal communities right mm -hmm. here it was we were like cut off from it so our work was not connected to spirit right we were forced to work and you know it's not like we were doing anything that's going to um help us right like right. and so so what i had to do was reconnect to the spirit of work right in mm -hmm in it being connected to um, my soul, connected to my soul purpose, mm -hmm. right? Um, because, because when we're connected to that, it doesn't feel like work anymore, right? It feels like play mm -hmm. and we're doing what we love. And so mm -hmm. that was one of the things that, that I feel like I, I healed with my, with my ancestors in this mm -hmm. process. Okay. But um but yeah, there's, there's, when, when you read it, you'll see that there's, you know, obviously a lot of strong women characters, a lot of strong, there's, a, there are a lot of strong men characters as well. Mm -hmm. um, really beautiful figures. And um, it's, it is an intense story. So it's not like, just like a magical mermaid story, obviously, because it's an antebellum America. Oh, yes. So, there are intense parts, but, um, mm. yeah, well, what is the black experience without intense parts, right? Yes. I mean, you are an authentic spirit, so I know you're going to keep it 100 when it comes to that. Um, art <laughs> sometimes imitates life and vice versa. That's just what it is for us. Uh, where do you, where are you taking this book next? I mean, Charlemagne loves it and, um, you somehow were able to overcome that aversion to it. And I had to listen to you real closely because I, I said, I was like, did she say a version? But no, you said aversion, meaning aversion. resistance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, 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 you were like, was it a block? Was it a creative block? And you, because some writers get writer's block, right? So is that what it was in layman's terms? Uh, well, that's one way it showed up, but it was almost every every version of work. So while, so, so maybe someone uh, from the outside in looking would never know that I had that issue because I always move through it. Right. Uh -huh. Like yes. I will, uh, no one's going to look at me and be like, Oh, I'm lazy. I don't like to work. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
because I'm always doing something and, and doing it, but there was a process. Like I was like, I do not want to work. Well, I surely uh, appreciate this time speaking with you. Um, I'm excited about this project for you. Uh, I was trying to purchase it on Kindle, but I see it's already available in paperback. Uh, I believe in hardback as well. So uh, thank you for joining us, Anita Kopach. Where can people find this book, Shallow Waters? Where can they find you, keep in touch with you, and follow your work? Thank you. Yes. Um, well, the, the book comes out August 3rd. You can purchase it. Um, you can pre-order it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, Goodreads has like a list of, I think there's some... Um, independent bookstores that you can pre-order it from. What I would love is that if you do know a black independent owned bookstore, if you let them know that you want it, so then that way we can be supporting um, black independent owned uh, bookstores oh. as well and letting them know that you want that book when it comes out. Yes. Um, they might not have it for pre-order, but if you let them know, then they will uh, be on it, right? To get mm -hmm. it. Yes, love that. And I happened to sneak on uh, one of your pages. I noticed that you were actually looking for an illustrator to draw um, mermaids. Can you talk to us about that real quick too? Yes. So we're, it's just, it's a, it's a shallow waters art contest. The book is already um, done, but the, the contest is to, um, is to be featured on Charlemagne's page. So the top three artists will be featured on his Instagram page, which has about 4 million followers. So um, the top three um, artists will be featured and then and then the audience will pick who the winner is. Ooh. And um, that for me was so that we could have even more images of Black mm -hmm. mermaids swimming around the internet, right? Yes, <laughs> why not? What's <laughs> yeah. wrong with that, right? What's wrong with that? Yes. Nothing. <laughs> Oh, that's tight. All right. All you illustrators, all you all you, you scribes, let, let's get on it. I mean, Anita has put the word out. Uh, we need some mermaids, some sisters, some black mermaids. mermaids. And um, you would when you you would post it on your page. If you have a black mermaid, post it on your page and put the hashtags shallow water book and black privilege publishing and tag me, Anita mm. Kopach. A-N-I-T-A-K-O-P as in Paul, A-C as in cat, Z as in zebra, mm -hmm. and Charlemagne the God, which is C-T-H-A-G-O, wait, no. That's what it. Is it. I think it's G-O-D. I think it's C-T-H-A-G-O-D. If it. it's not that, you could look it up, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure it. it'll come up. Absolutely. Yeah, there's only one Charlemagne the God. And it it just seems so right. I mean, for for him to, you know, find a place in his soul for this to, to be the second after Tamika Mallory's book. I mean, this this is divine. And I'm divine. really excited for you. And you are the right sister for this time and this moment. Shallow Waters is uh, the right book. And it's the one we need right now. We need some more Black mermaids out there, y'all. Well, that's our show, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Check back with us. We shall return next week. Also want to thank our very special guest for the evening, Moyo. 
Dr. Allison McDade, Dr. Miyang Lu Kabata, as well as the good sister, Anita Kopach. Also want to send a very special shout out to Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board. And we're out of here, y'all. Take care.